Welcome to POP, the sermon podcast for Peace Lutheran Church in Gehenna, with Pastors Doug Warburton and Tony Katko. Last week, we started a new series on the book of Revelation, everyone's favorite book in the Bible, right? Yay, that's right. Uh, So a few reminders from last week. First of all, no matter what you've heard about Revelation, it is not, and it was never meant to be some secret code to decode when the world was coming to an end. If you're looking for a nice doomsday prediction device, I'm sorry, Revelation is not it. That's not what it's about. Second, even though there are a lot of visions of the future, the purpose of this letter, of this book of the Bible, was always more about how to help the people of God live out their faith in the present. It matters for us here and now. Then the last thing is to beware as you look through this book, there's a lot of weird stuff. There's a lot of scary, strange images, but they're not meant to fill us with fear. In the first vision, Jesus comes to John and says, do not be afraid. The point of this letter was to fill us with hope and not fear. Now, part of why Revelation is so difficult for us to understand today is because it was a letter, like most of the New Testament, and it was written to Christians living in the end of the first century. And our experience today as Christians in the 21st century in the United States is very different than life as a Christian living under the Roman Empire at the end of the first century when Christianity was illegal. Things were very different then. So today we're going to focus on the experience of some of those Christians by looking at pieces of the second and third chapter in Revelation, which are these seven letters that Jesus says to write to these seven churches in Asia Minor. So to get our bearings, here's a map of the area that will keep up. So there on the right, those are the seven cities where these churches are. That's kind of the edge of modern-day Turkey. If you look on the left, that mainland is Greece. And then in the middle there, you can see Patmos is labeled. That's the island where John, the author, was exiled, and that's where he is writing all this stuff. Now, we definitely don't have time to unpack all seven of these letters, so we're going to focus on two, two of the churches that represent two very different experiences of what it looked like to be Christians at this time, and starting with Smyrna. So here is what Jesus says to write to the church in Smyrna. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, these are the words of the first and the last who is dead and came to life. I know your affliction and your poverty, even though you are rich. I know the slander on the parts of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have affliction. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Whoever conquers will not be harmed by the second death. That's pretty common knowledge, I think, that at this time, Christians were persecuted by the Roman Empire. For this time, it was illegal to be a Christian, and it could lead to your death. But that experience of persecution for Christians was not universal. Actually, the level of danger, it greatly depended on where 
you were. I don't know about you, but sometimes I used to have this picture in my head of what that persecution looked like, and it would be like these groups of Roman soldiers, and they would go door to door, knocking on doors, inspecting every house throughout the entire empire, looking for Christians, and then they would drag out the Christians and kill them in the streets, and that's just not what happened at all. First of all, the, the Roman Empire had more important things to do than spending all their energy on that. Actually, what they did was relied on the locals to turn in the troublemakers, because that's what they actually cared about. They cared about the people who were causing trouble. They wanted to maintain order. As far as the beliefs, the Romans were pretty pluralistic. As long as you didn't show a disloyalty to the empire, you could basically believe what you want. I mean, picture the, the Greek and Roman pantheon of all the gods. So at this time, you'd go to a town, and each town would kind of have their local favorite, and so you'd build a temple to this god and worship that, and you know what the Romans said? That's fine. The one caveat is you also had to participate in the imperial cults, which is giving some worship to Rome, giving some worship to Caesar. And for most people, it didn't matter, right? Okay, I get to keep my religion, I get to worship my local god, and I also have to salute the flag. Okay, great. It was a little different than that, but that's kind of the idea. And think about it, people were happy to acknowledge the authority of Rome. In the church, we often focus on all the bad things of Rome. There's a lot of bad things Rome did. They also did a lot of good. I mean, they made a lot of places a whole lot safer. They cut down on bandits. They cut down on pirates. They built roads and aqueducts. They encouraged trade that would boost the local economies. So think about it from the average citizen's perspective. Okay, we'll salute the government if you cut down on crime and grow the economy. Doesn't actually sound that different than what we expect out of politicians and governments today, does it? Now, Jewish people had an interesting place in Roman society because as far as we know, everyone else had to participate in that imperial cult, in the emperor worship. But Jews didn't. They were exempt from it. At some point, the Romans came to understand that this particular group of people were a little bit different. They worshiped just this one God, and they didn't want to worship any other gods. But this was an ancient, established faith they were practicing. This wasn't some new, dangerous cult that might cause problems. And so Rome basically said, pay your taxes, don't cause trouble, and you don't even have to worship the emperor. It's fine. Now, early on, Christians looked to outsiders like Jews because they were at the beginning, right? Jesus was Jewish. All of his followers were Jewish. So from outside perspective, for a while, it just seemed like this is just a branch, a new denomination that's cropped up. Christians were only in trouble if their neighbors turned them in for being different. And that's exactly what was happening in Smyrna. Look again at verse 9. I know the slander on the part of those who say that they are Jews and are not, the people who are giving good Jews a bad name, right? And are a synagogue of Satan. It's harsh language, right? He's describing some of these local Jews who were turning in their neighbors and condemning them to suffering and death. It is important to remember 
with so much anti-Semitism today. It is real important to remember that this is not talking about all Jewish people or all Jewish people at the time. This is talking about some of them. There were Jewish communities around all of the churches that are mentioned in Revelation. And John only mentions two cities where there are problems, just Smyrna and Philadelphia. So in the other places, the Christians got along well enough with their Jewish neighbors. But for whatever reason, in Smyrna and in Philadelphia, that wasn't the case. And some of those Jewish neighbors were going to the authorities. And it's not actually hard to imagine what they would have said. They, they would have said something like, hey, these Christians, they claim to be Jews. They claim to have good standing with the empire, but they're not like us. We worship God. They are worshiping this person, Jesus, who was a criminal who was executed for sedition. And we think that might cause problems. We want you to know that we are not like them. And so John tells us, actually, what would happen? What was the procedure when these Christians would be turned in? Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Beware, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have affliction. Be faithful until death, and I will give you the crown of life. See, if they were reported to the Romans, they would be taken to prison, which is different than our prisons today. It wasn't like a prison sentence. You'd be taken there so you could be reasoned with. There's a document from a Roman official named Pliny that survived that was written around this time, around the time Revelation was written. And he writes exactly what he would do when Christians were turned in to him. He would give them three chances. He would ask them, are you a Christian? Are you a part of this weird cult that's causing problems in the empire? And if they said yes, he would give them a few days in prison to think long and hard about their answer. And then he would ask them two more times the same thing. Are you sure that you want to hold on to these beliefs? And if at the end of that period, about 10 days apparently, then he would have them executed. So Jesus' message to these Christians in Smyrna acknowledges that some of them are going to face this. Some of them are going to face this horrible reality. And in this letter to them, there's no reprimands, there's no warnings, there's no harsh words like we hear in some of the others. No, it's just words of hope for these people in a difficult reality living in fear. Even those who will face death, this is not the end for you. If you look at the message to the church in Philadelphia, it's basically the same thing. Those two churches were not going to be wiped out, but some of them were being turned in by their neighbors, and they would be killed. But when you look at the other five congregations, the other five letters, their situation is different than that. In Pergamum, there's one person, Antipas, who was executed, but it happened some time ago, and nothing like that has really happened since. So there is some fear of being a Christian, but for five out of seven of these churches, it doesn't sound like their lives were actually currently under threat. The things they were struggling with were a lot more ordinary than that. So in their letters, Jesus doesn't talk about physical danger. He warns these churches about the less obvious dangers, like the dangers of false teachers, the dangers of compromising their beliefs for the sake of fitting in. And he talks about eating idol meat, the meat that was sacrificed to Greek gods. You see, at this time, for most Christians, the question, even at the time of Revelation, 
is how do you live out your faith when you are surrounded by a culture that has different values and different beliefs than you do? And when is it okay to quietly go along to fit in? And when are the times where you are called to stand up for what you believe in? See, that sounds a little more similar to what we are experiencing today. It's still different, but that's a little more similar. Now, let's be clear about this. Christians in the U.S., we are not persecuted for our faith. We are not living in fear that someone's going to kill us if they find out what we believe in. The danger for us is more that we become so comfortable with the way things are that our faith doesn't change the way we live. Our faith doesn't actually make a difference in our lives. That's more of the danger for us. So we've looked at Smyrna, which represents the worst situation that the Christians at this time were facing. We're going to look at one other church, Laodicea. Now, Laodicea is the other end of the spectrum. From the outside, this church was doing fine. They looked like they were really thriving. Now, remember Smyrna, facing all these struggles and facing death, Jesus gave them encouragement and hope. The message for this church that's comfortable is a little different story. So here's what Jesus says to them. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Laodicea. This is the message from the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's new creation. I know all the things you do, that you are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other. But since you are like lukewarm water, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have everything I want, I don't need a thing. And you don't realize that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. A little different tone, isn't it? Could you imagine having this letter read to you in church? Here's what I want you to picture. Someone like an assistant from the bishop comes in to guest preach and they say, I bring greetings from Bishop Suzanne Dillahunt, your partner in Christ of the Southern Ohio Senate. Here's a letter from her. Peace, Gehenna. You are a lukewarm community. You don't realize it, but you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Grace and peace be with you. <laughs> that would not have gone over well, right? Like, what did you do to deserve this? Now, the lukewarm thing is an interesting metaphor. It actually has to do with well-to-do dinner parties. You see, in Laodicea was a wealthy area, and in wealthy areas like this, when you're throwing a big party, they would have water heaters in the buildings so they could heat up the food, heat up the water so it would be nice and hot to serve to your guests. And Romans would uh, strain their wine to get out the sentiment. And when you were throwing a big party, you would even get some snow from the nearby mountains to put it in those strainers. That way you would strain your wine through it and you'd have a nice chilled drink on a hot day. Sounds good, doesn't it? You see, these people, they knew how to have a good culinary experience. They knew what it meant to serve things nice and hot or nice and cold. And Jesus is like, Y'all are a cup of coffee that's been sitting out all day. And ain't nobody wants that. I want some nice iced cold brew or I want a freshly heated cup out of a French press. But you are neither. You are this nasty stuff and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now after calling them lukewarm, Jesus goes on to reference some other things that the Laodiceans would have been proud at. 
proud of. He says, so I advise you to buy gold from me, gold that has been purified by fire, then you will be rich. There was an earthquake about the year 60, and it caused a lot of damage in this area. And Rome offered to pay for some of the rebuild, and Laodicea said, no, we're fine. We've got plenty of money to do it on our own. They were a self-made place. They were proud of their gold, their money. And so Jesus says, that's not where you get your security. Get your security. Get your gold from me. Then he goes on to make a couple other references. Also, buy white garments from me, so you will not be shamed by your nakedness, an ointment for your eyes, so you'll be able to see. One of the ways that Laodicea got its wealth was from textiles. They were known for producing a really fine, dark wool to make really nice clothes. And Jesus says, guess what? You're naked. And they were known for this medical school they had there that made a really good eye salve, a treatment for the eyes. And Jesus says, you are blind. You need ointment from me. He's showing them that all these things they're so proud of, all the things that they rely on, those are really just distracting them from what really matters. Imagine that. Imagine thinking that life is about achieving wealth and success. Imagine spending most of our energy on this short life that we get on earth, trying to build a reputation and a career that we think will last forever and will give us purpose. And then in the process, you forget about your main calling to live and love like Jesus. So Jesus is pretty harsh to this church, but at the end, he does offer them some hope. He says this, I correct and discipline everyone I love. I love you too much to let you waste your lives without saying anything. So be diligent and turn from your indifference. Look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in and we will share a meal together as friends. Jesus is like, look, I'm not far off. I'm right there, always right there knocking on the door. So in these first three chapters of Revelation, we've only had one vision so far. And there's no monsters. There's no dragons and beasts and horsemen or plagues, none of that stuff. All that John has seen so far is this. It's Jesus, and then around Jesus are these seven lampstands, which he tells us represent the seven churches, the seven candles. And the point, look at this. There is nothing about the future in this image. The first revelation is just about the present reality, what is already true. The church of Jesus Christ in the world is like those candles, and each one of them is shining the light of Christ in their own way. And they're facing their own struggles. They're facing different challenges. Some of them really need to refocus on their mission. Others of them just need some encouragement to keep going with the good work they're doing. And where is Jesus? He's sitting right in the middle of all the candles. Do you get it? The first revelation is that God is not far off. God is not sitting, biding time until the end of the world, and then God will come back and get involved again. 
Jesus is sitting in the middle of all of God's people no matter what they're going through. You know, reading all these letters, it makes me wonder, if Jesus was writing a letter to us, what do you think it would say today? Maybe there would be some words of comfort for people who are struggling. Maybe it'd be some challenge for those of us who are too comfortable. Maybe a little bit of both. Would Jesus remind us of what's really important in life and what is just a distraction? Would he remind us that no one is really self-made, that we need each other and we need God? Maybe he'd even invite us to be a little bolder about our faith when it's difficult. As we hear stories of violence again and again in this world, to remember that being peacemakers is a part of our faith too. And maybe if we listen, we'll each hear a message from God for us that's a little different, showing us, trying to help lead us, figure out where we go from here. And you know what? I don't know what that message is. I don't know what the particular message is for each of you and for me. But there's one thing we know for sure. We are not going there on our own. Jesus is right here with us. He has been the whole time. And even when we try to just ignore it, even when we pretend that we can do everything on our own, Jesus is always right there knocking on the door, ready to eat a meal with us. Not as a stranger, but as a friend who loves us. Amen. Amen.